It is Monday, July 24th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Today, a program for first-time mothers comes to Arkansas. Our nurses are really educators, they're social workers, and they're nurses. They really mix all of those services into one, and that's really why our program um, is so successful and why we really want to see it reach more Arkansas moms. We continue our examination of the high maternal mortality rates in Arkansas, plus a continuing Confederate monument saga in Eureka Springs. Mr. Massey, you know, has indicated complete compliance uh, with the wishes going forward. He will be buried there, which was information that we did not have. And Arkansas radio legends Lum and Abner remembered through Prior Center archives. What is a hillbilly? Him? Look here, Lum, I can show you. <laughs> Ain't that the country feller? <laughs> well, that's what I've always wanted to know. What is a hillbilly? First, NPR News. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art invites guests to discover Diego Rivera's America before it closes July 31st. This is the first major exhibition focused solely on the Mexican artist in over 20 years and features popular works such as Nude with Calla Lilies and The Flower Carrier, plus digital projections of his murals, including Pan American Unity and three major paintings by Frida Kahlo. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. It is Monday, July 24th, 2023. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Later this hour, an update on a Confederate monument erected in a Eureka Springs cemetery. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich has been covering the story and will join me in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2 to give us an update. First, Arkansas has the highest maternal mortality rate in the nation, according to the most recent CDC and Department of Health data. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spent time this summer reporting on the issue and recently spoke to a national nursing program that's looking to improve the health for Arkansas mothers. Families are moving away from multi-generational households to more isolated dwellings. Traditionally, family members used to help new moms with babies and are usually monitoring for dangerous postpartum symptoms. The newer trend paired with health and social disparities has propelled the maternal death crisis, as previously reported with AKI's Dr. Joe Thompson, to new heights. The Arkansas Department of Health worked with Nurse Family Partnership, a national program that centers around providing support to mothers, helping them navigate the journey from pregnancy to motherhood. Brittany McAllister is the senior government affairs manager for the partnership, and she says they use registered nurses who have at least a bachelor's degree to work with first-time mothers. Who are low income from early in their pregnancy until their baby turns two years old. And so we're intervening with moms who are looking to um, get the help they need to have a healthy pregnancy, become a caring and trusted parent. And so Nurse Family Partnership is a model that is evidence-based on 45 years of research showing that it makes a difference in the lives of moms and their children, not only during the program, but for generations to come. One of the first things that comes to mind with a program like this are the obvious questions. How much does it cost and who is paying for it? Brittany says that the program is at no cost to families. Um, it's entirely publicly funded through a variety of federal and state funding sources. Um, and now there's a new opportunity in Arkansas to fund it through Medicaid as well. Brittany says one solution their program uses for combating high death rates and serious health conditions, specifically with maternal mortality, is that they focus on health care workers coming to mothers, not the other way around. And one thing that shines about, you know, our program is those home visits are provided regardless that the mother doesn't need to obtain transportation or child care. We can come out to her home or wherever she may be 
to provide those services. And nurses remain the number one most trusted profession in America year after year. And so having nurses not only helps build that trusting relationship, but they're also able to bring their clinical skills to monitor those prenatal conditions that might um, lead to risk for a bad outcome during birth or after birth for the mom or the baby. Brittany says their research shows that they have improvements in both preterm and low-weight babies. We also um, succeed at getting more mothers to breastfeed, helping them through that process, which can be really difficult. The objective of this care is not to replace traditional pediatric visits or OB visits postpartum. But we're helping them advocate for themselves at their visits. We're helping them understand the importance of going to those visits and even helping them connect to services if they do need transportation or child care to be able to do those things to take care of themselves and their babies. We can help arrange that as well. The program, implemented in over 40 states, has served more than 1,500 families in Arkansas since 2011. Regina Vitor, a nursing manager for Nurse Family Partnership in the state, says that the program centers around high-risk clients and helping bridge the gap between underserved communities and accessing quality health care. What support that client needs at that moment and and supports that client, doesn't really tell the client what to do, but lets the client choose their direction and then provides resources and support as needed. The population that's being served, they can serve to our current implementation in Arkansas can serve 200 families. When I did my last site visit, which was looking at 2022 data, the population is 75% black. And we know that black women have a three time higher mortality rate in, in that maternal period. Uh, than anybody else. So just right off the bat, they're high risk. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter what they do, what their income is, high risk immediately. Regina says that one of the main concerns that nurses who work with families point to, little access to health, financial, and community services, especially in counties that are maternity care deserts. Well, I can say that the number one thing that they talk about, the nurses, especially at the last site visit, is the fact that there are no services. That when a when a nurse may identify risk factors in pregnancy that may lead to postpartum, you know, poor outcomes, um, there there isn't an OB in the county. <laughs> they have to go multiple counties over, and that postpartum visit, which is a really really important visit, it's really access to care. There's just there's just nowhere to go, and to try to bundle up a newborn and put them on the bus or take them in a taxi, they, it's just really really difficult. The connection between nurse and client helps combat the mistrust in the healthcare system, mistrust that leads to dangerous outcomes for moms. That moment, that connection where a nurse gets to talk to a mom, um, we serve our highest risk moms. So they are homeless, they are substance using, they um, have had generations of trauma, they are distrustful of our community resources, our hospital systems, they have not had good experiences. And so to be able to ask questions and to feel seen and heard by a health professional and to be able to trust the information and then implement, make change in their life so that they can have a healthy baby, they can have some child development skills. That is where the good stuff of this program happens. Nurses fill all kinds of roles, according to Brittany. Our nurses are really educators, they're social workers, and they're nurses. They really mix all of those services into one. And that's really why our program um, is so successful and why we really want to see it reach more Arkansas moms. You can go to OzarksAtLarge.com to find more information about Nurse Family Partnership and how to apply for a free nurse. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith.
You can find all of Rachel Sanchez-Smith's previous reporting on maternal mortality on our website as well. That's at ozarksatlarge.com. While you're there, you can find links to our newsletter that comes to your email inbox every weekday morning, as well as ways to subscribe to the Ozarks at Large podcast. Northwest Health will host blood drives in Fayetteville and Johnson Wednesday. The first at Northwest Health Physician Specialty Hospital parking lot in Fayetteville is from 830 to 1130. The second from 2 to 4.30 at Willow Creek Women's Hospital. Both drives will be operated inside the Community Blood Center of the Ozarks Bloodmobile in the hospital parking lots. A reminder, bring your photo ID to make sure you can donate blood. It's also suggested you drink plenty of water or juice the night before and eat a balanced meal about two or three hours before giving blood. On the next episode of The R Word, hosts Lowell and Dustin speak with Dr. Soon Cheng Ra, an author, pastor, professor, and advocate for racial justice in the Christian church. There is something called internalization, where the system is so powerful and the individual uh, internalizes what the system teaches. And this is what I talk about with narratives and imagination. Narratives, stories, uh, worldview, uh, ethics, ethos, culture, all of these things that become a part of the individual that they internalize from social narrative and societal pressure. You can listen to The R Word, a podcast that explores reparations role in racial, social, and economic justice in the Christian church. For free at KUAF.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. Still to come this Monday, Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History is away this week, so we're going back to a winter visit when he brought archives of Lum and Abner, Arkansas legends from the golden age of radio. If I was fixing my evening meal, I got my meal fixed before I started in, before the program come on. That's in about 12 minutes on today's show. If you have a business or organization within KUAF's listening area and want to support public radio while connecting our thousands of engaged listeners with your services, consider becoming a KUAF business member today. Starting at just $500, you'll be linked on our business members directory and mentioned during our spring and fall on-air fund drives. Sign up today at KUAF.com. Arkansas's unemployment rate is at another all-time low. The June report shows the state with a jobless rate of 2.6 percent, the fourth consecutive month. The numbers from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics has indicated an all-time low in Arkansas. There are just fewer than 36,000 residents without jobs, a decrease of just more than 19 percent compared to June of 2022. According to Talk Business and Politics, the biggest year-over-year sector gains in jobs were in leisure and hospitality, with almost 11,000 new jobs since this time last year. Meanwhile, a new analysis of U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics by Forbes magazine places Arkansas 49th among all states when it comes to annual pay. According to the article, the average annual salary in Arkansas is about $48,500, roughly $10,000 below the national average. Cash, the creative Arkansas Community Hub and Exchange, is partnering with a group of Master of Design students at the University of Arkansas to offer free development workshops for artists. The first workshop, focusing on digital image making, is tomorrow. Brittany Johnson, Director of Communications for Cash, says the sessions are free for anybody to attend. The registrations are open to the public. You don't have to be a student. You don't even have to really call yourself an artist. You could just be curious about how to do digital imaging. It's free to attend. You just show up. 
Each workshop is at the School of Art on West Praxis Lane in Fayetteville. Next month, there are classes also free for learning methods of typography as well as printing and reproduction. Johnson says the collaboration with the student group, Art Radius, furthers a fundamental cash mission of providing professional development. For both artists and nonprofit organizations, and we offer... We try to offer a wide range of topics, and the U of A, the School of Art in particular, came to us. They did this maybe month-long series of conversations with our staff to try and figure out where the holes in some of our programming were and how they might be able to plug them, and this is what they came back with. Registration is still open for each session, including tomorrow's, through the community development link at cashcreate.org or through Eventbrite. Each session is from 5 to 7 in the evening. A Family in Lamar is this year's Arkansas Young Farmers and Ranchers Excellence in Agriculture Award winner. Brooklyn and Chris Heiser operate a commercial and registered cattle herd of Sim Angus and Angus Cattle in Johnson County. The award is given annually to individuals or couples who earn the majority of their income through off-farm efforts, but who are involved in farming in Arkansas Farm Bureau. Off the farm, Chris manages Wilkins Farms, and Brooklyn manages Sweet Treats Sandwich and Pie Shop. Well, now I'm hungry. <laughs> They're now eligible for the national version of the award. A former Razorback runner now holds the record for fastest mile by an American. This weekend, Nikki Hiltz ran a 416.35 mile at the Monaco Diamond League meet. The mark is about three-tenths of a second faster than the previous American record, set almost two and almost two seconds faster than Hiltz's personal best. Previous American mark was established in 1985 by Mary Slaney. In 2018, Hiltz earned first-team NCAA Division I All-America honors in the 1,500-meter outdoors at the 2018 NCAA Division I Outdoor Track and Field Championships. That when Hiltz was running for the Razorbacks. And former Razorback pitcher Isaiah Campbell picked up his first major league win this weekend. Campbell, who also played for the Arkansas Travelers during his minor league career, was the winning pitcher in the Seattle Mariners' victory over Toronto Saturday night. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm here with Jacqueline Froelich, Ozarks at Large senior news producer. Jacqueline, thanks for being here in the studio with me. Hi. So you've been reporting on the mysterious installation of a new 15-foot-tall white limestone Confederate obelisk that's in the Eureka Springs City Historical City Cemetery. If you've missed our previous coverage, let's quickly get folks up to speed here. This obelisk was installed in a privately owned plot. It was initially as a memorial to the Confederacy, and since your coverage began, local officials have been involved, and there was a discussion of potentially removing this object. And initially, city officials were unaware of the monument, permitted by then-city cemetery superintendent Bruce Wright, who's since resigned after your story aired, right? Correct. Uh, City Councilman Harry Meyer was the one who contacted me in early June about this, and he was really alarmed by this obelisk that he saw and didn't quite understand what was going on. And the reason he contacted me is because a few years ago, 
I reported that Colton Massey, he's a local resident, had been installing perpetual Confederate flags on numerous graves in this cemetery. Massey's commander of the Sons of Confederate Veterans Seaboard Jones Cotton Camp in Eureka Springs. Mm -hmm. And in 2021, the Cemetery Commission passed a rule to allow the flags to remain unless a descendant requests removal. And today, the rebel flags are planted all over the cemetery and Colton is behind this new endeavor. This obelisk appears to be an escalation of his patriotism in support of the Confederacy, Confederate history in particular. And on it, I was there last Saturday looking at it closely. He attached a round metal plaque. It's the great seal of the Confederate States of of America and another metal medallion to mark United Confederate veterans. So it's it's definitely a Confederate monument. And it turns out Massey deeded the plot of land in the cemetery to erect this monument. And I queried him in early June, and he emailed me a statement saying that the monument cost $10,000. It commemorates Carroll County Confederates who served and died in the Civil War. However, in uh, subsequent media interviews, he claimed the monument honors both Confederate and Union soldiers. And I pointed out this discrepancy in an email to the town mayor and the cemetery commissioners, whom all of which I had been communicating with. Right, yeah. So was the monument legally placed inside the cemetery? So this is the thing. According to an expert at the Arkansas Municipal League, it is. Mm. I was told cemetery grave markers are a form of free speech and that this monument sits atop a deeded burial plot, right? Problem is, Massey never mentioned this was a grave marker. He's apparently claiming now that's so to keep the monument in place. Yeah, so so now Massey is claiming that this is the equivalent of a future gravestone marker for himself? Yeah. In a statement he issued last week to the Cemetery Commission, he's now made that claim. Ah, got it. So has the city taken any action on this Confederate obelisk at this point? So City Cemetery Commissioner Chair L.B. Wilson did issue a statement early on saying the monument is in compliance. He did express concerns, however, about the lack of installation disclosure to the commission and city officials. He also expressed concerns about the monument's message. City Councilman Harry Meyer, however, continues to press for the monument's removal, and he had placed that on tonight's city council agenda. That item, however, was by Eureka Springs Mayor Butch Berry. He says it's not an issue for council to decide. The only cemetery commissioner who's been willing to talk to us on the record is David Danvers. He's treasurer. He's argued the historic cemetery is not a memorial park. Initially, he proposed removing the monument, but now Colt Massey's claiming the monument is a gravestone under which he and his future family, he's currently unmarried with no kids, will be buried someday. So Danvers has had had a change of mind, and I spoke with him late last week about this. Since that point in time, Mr. Massey, you know, has indicated complete compliance uh, with the wishes going forward. He will be buried there, which was information that we did not have, uh, and his entire family. And he intends on putting his name, you know, on that monument that uh, he has. 
Danvers initially told me Massey resorted to deception and fraud to erect the monument, failing to disclose this plan fully. The way we're viewing it now, it is as it is. Uh, we will not make any attempts to have that removed, and we're moving on with our other challenges and, and opportunities that we have here at the cemetery. So it's over? It appears so, but Massey, in his statement to the commission, claimed that a, quote, activist reporter, which apparently is me, mm -hmm. has spread terrible misinformation about him, that he's simply honoring the Confederate history of Carroll County. Yeah, and what about the perpetual Confederate flags that keep showing up at the Eureka Springs City Cemetery? Well, we've got some news there. At a recent Cemetery Commission meeting, a new rule was proposed and subsequently approved, giving the commission authority over flag and plaque placement on graves in future. Now, any individual or groups wishing to place flags or plaques on graves not under their ownership must first obtain permission from the Cemetery Commission. Mm -hmm. So if a plot owner or family doesn't want the placement of any flags or plaques, they have to notify the cemetery commission so that they can be removed. So as I reported previously, it's likely this Confederate monument is among the first to be erected since the removal of more than 160 such monuments and memorials in recent years triggered by the Black Lives Matter movement, such iconography is problematic because the Confederate Army did not fight for the United States of America. Confederates fought against the United States and the Union Army for secession from the U.S. The monuments also symbolize a century of horrific enslavement of Africans and African Americans. That's Ozarks at Large reporter Jacqueline Froelich, who is a reporter of record tracing back to 1998 on Ozarks African American history, unearthing racial cleansings, profiling the Ku Klux Klan, and as well as the white patriot movement in Arkansas. Jackie, you're an expert on this. We're grateful to have you reporting. Thanks, Matthew. <laughs> He's a hillbilly. The first thing I ever seen. What is a hillbilly? Him? Look here, Mom. I can show you. <laughs> ain't that the country feller? <laughs> well, that's what I've always wanted to know. What is a hillbilly? Well, I ain't never seen one myself. But I... This is Ozarks at Large. It's time to go through some prior center archives with Randy Dixon once again. Randy, what did we just hear? Well, uh, that was Lum and Abner. And in their day... Uh, they were one of the top-rated uh, radio comedies on the air. And this is, when you say in their day, their day was when radio was king. Right. Golden age. Tens of millions of people would listen to the most popular radio shows yeah. at night. Yeah, pre-television. We're talking right. the 30s. Right. Um, they started in 1931, and they were on until 1954, mid-50s. When the golden so that, age of radio was dying quickly. Right, right. But, I mean, they they had a go. They're both from Arkansas. They grew up in the MENA area, same age. Uh, Chet Locke was Lum, mm -hmm. and Norris Goff was Abner. And they went to here at the University of Arkansas, and they got a little kind of a routine going. Right. They were entertainers here when they were in Fayetteville. Right. Before Martin and Lewis or Cheech and Chong right. or, you know, uh, the comedy teams that you that you know of over the years. They took their material from where they grew up uh, around the MENA area and 
especially a town called Waters. Mm -hmm. But we'll get to that in right. a minute. So uh, after their big careers, they even made some movies. I was going to say they transferred over to some movies, which, while not classics, did well at the box office. Right. They, they made, were household names. Right. They made seven of them. Yeah. But Chet Locke retired to Hot Springs. And, well, here in the 60s, when he was retired, KATV caught up with him, and he was just driving around, and they, they put a camera in the car with him. Well, it was actually on the spur of the moment. Uh, my partner, Norris Goff, and I were both living in Mena, Arkansas, and we had established a sort of a local reputation as blackface comedians. And we were invited to appear on the radio station in Hot Springs, KTHS. But on our way over, we decided maybe we better not do blackface because Amos and Andy had started. The two black crows were very popular. There were two or three other teams like Honey Boy and Sassafras, Molasses in January. So we decided to do two rural characters, small town characters. And just as we went on the air, the announcer said, well, now, what's the name of your act? And we said, well, we hadn't thought about that. I said, well, I'll be Lum Edwards. And, and my partner said, I'll be Abner Peabody. So the announcer said, we'll now have a visit with Lum Edwards and Abner Peabody. Well, they were talking about blackface. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing back then it was fairly common. And they didn't do it because it would be offensive, or they, right? Yeah, they did it because too many other people were doing it. Because African Americans were not being employed in the entertainment industry. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So that's where we started in Hot Springs. So after a few shows, I mean just a few shows, they were picked up by NBC Network, and that was in 1931. So let's listen to a little of one of their programs so you can kind of get an, an idea of what they did. And now as we look in on the little community of Pine Ridge, we find Lum in the Jotham Down store blocking Abner's path to the door. Listen. Now, wait a minute, Abner. Where do you think you're going? Lum, I've got to mail this letter for Ed Stoddard. Now, just why would Ed Stoddard want you to mail a letter for him? He's the postmaster. Well, not for a while he ain't. See, this letter is to the post office department telling them to send out a, a substitute for to take his place. Why? What's wrong with Ed? Well, you know how absent-minded he's been getting here late. Oh, I know it, I know it. Just the other day I seen him sauntering along in the rain, holding his hand out in front of him like he's carrying an umbrella. He told me later he didn't realize he'd forgot it till the rain stopped and he reached up to close it. <laughs> now, they were off the air by the time I was growing up, but a lot of stations... Well, me too. Yes, that's true, that's true. <laughs> a lot of radio stations in Arkansas would still play their 15-minute shows uh, at some point in the day. And so I grew up listening to Lum and Abner on some AM stations in Arkansas, though they were reruns by that time. Well, they did have a resurgence. Yeah. Um, but in that last clip, you heard about the Jotham Down store. Mm -hmm. Well, that's based on an actual store, Dick Huddleston's general store, which was in the town of Waters. And that's where, you know, Everyone would hang out, and this is where he came up with the name. Here's Chedlock again. The old Jotham Down store sat right down here, but it burned out 
ooh, a couple of years ago. It's been rebuilt, but it looks rather modern now. That was the only real name that we used on our show. And uh, he became rather famous because of that. I, I expect there'd been a million visitors in this little store here just to see the locale of the Lumen Abner show. So Pine Ridge. Well, it, yeah, yeah, it was a fictional town, right. but there was th this is how popular the show was. It, let me put it like this. I had read that in one week they received one and a half million fan letters. Mm. That's so they they were one of the tops. Yes. Anyway, it was so popular that everyone wanted to know where Pine Ridge was. So the town of Waters decided to change its name, and in 1936, they had a big ceremony at the state capitol, and they changed their name to Pine Ridge. We're trying to think of a name of a town that uh, would depict this section of the country. We always had this area in mind, and of course, you, as you see, there are lots of pine trees in here and lots of hills and ridges. So it was a sort of a natural conclusion, Pine Ridge. It was originally Waters, Arkansas, but I, because we used the name Dick Huddleston as one of our characters, uh, and he lived in Waters, uh, they were anxious to capitalize on the publicity that we were giving the mythical town of Pine Ridge, so they officially changed the name of the town. So Waters has changed its name to Pine Ridge, and you mentioned that Chet Locke was available for interviews a lot by KATV, but KATV loved doing stories about Lemon Abner. Oh, yeah, they would go over to that part of the state. Mm -hmm. The Washtaws. Right, and go to the store that had now mm -hmm. cashed in and become the Jot 'em Down store. Um, in Pine Ridge. And so KATV talked to a few of the residents who had years before been diehard fans of the show. We, we always listened every afternoon. That's when our program come on there. And if I had anything to do, I, I would get it done before the, the program started. And I didn't want no disturbance. If I was fixing my evening meal, I got my meal fixed before I started in, before the program come on and finished it up because I wanted to hear the whole thing. I didn't want no disturbance from anywhere. Had an old uh, battery radio set and we would save that battery every day to get, that they were on to get the Lum and Abner show. And we just thought there's nothing like it, you know, and we'd leave our work, our chickens or our hogs, what we had out on the farm to feed till we got the program where we would go tend to our chores even. And uh, of course I knew the boys personally and so did my husband and we just thought it was wonderful. So another thing I found in the archives, Chet Locke actually did some work for KATV. He, uh, well one of the things he did, you know, in the McClellan Kerr lock and dam system, they, they started opening the dams, and there'd be a ceremony for every one of them. I think there were 17. But KTV did a program, a 90-minute documentary from both sides 
both states, the Arkansas and Oklahoma. And so Ben Combs, who was the program director at the time, got Chet Locke to narrate the Arkansas side and the Oklahoma side, he got Will Rogers Jr. Oh, wow. But here's Ben talking about the project. So in 1968, I was the public affairs director, KTV, and I decided that we needed to do a documentary about the Arkansas River because it was about to become navigable. But I called Chet and I said, would you be willing to narrate the Arkansas portion of this 90-minute documentary that we're going to play at the dedication and then we're going to play it on KTV for the television audience? And he said, I would love to. Will Rogers once jokingly said that it would be cheaper to pave the Arkansas than to make it navigable. And the figure does come out to about $2,700,000 per river mile. As chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee and sort of in charge of our purse strings, how do you justify this $1,200,000,000 expenditure? This type of a program cannot be done by a private uh, enterprise. It must be done by government. And uh, the only way government can do it, of course, is to use the tax revenues that are taken from individuals to carry it out. You also heard in there um, Congressman Wilbur Mills. Yes. Uh, he was the, the person uh, Chet Locke interviewed mm-hmm. there at the end. And at the time, of course, he was chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee and the most powerful, one of the most powerful right. men in Washington. Also in the 60s, uh, a Hot Springs radio station, you were talking about mm-hmm. reruns. They started a resurgence of the Lum and Abner show. And here's a report uh, from KETV's Ben Hogan about that. From the observation tower here in Hot Springs, you can see where one of the most successful radio shows of all time began some 37 years ago. Lum and Abner, a comedy team utilizing the rural humor of country folk, became well-known figures in households all across the country. After 20 years of being off the air, the old tapes are being revived here in Hot Springs with a great deal of success. Chester Locke, better known as Lum, makes his home here in the Spa City today. Well, I'm very pleased about it being revived. It's the first time I've ever been able to listen to the show. Personally, uh, I never could get home in time when we were performing. And I have hopes that this might spread to other sections of the country. I think it's significant that we revived it here in Hot Springs, where the program originated in the very beginning, 1931. Do you think that this revival of Lum and Abner might be a, a starting place for the revival of some of the other great golden era radio shows? Well, I think so. Uh, judging from the response to uh, the few weeks that it's been on locally here in Hot Springs, uh, it indicates that other programs would be similarly received. Someday soon, the Lum and Abner programs, which millions of Americans enjoyed, may be back on the air all over Arkansas. Their success may mark a revival of the golden age of radio. This is Ben Hogan, KTV News in Hot Springs. And now back to B.J. Sams in Little Rock. I think as recently as, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago up here, Kerm 790 AM was still playing, I think, in the morning. Wow. Uh, some, and I'll tell you, I would listen occasionally. I couldn't understand a lot of what was being said. They had those thick, really kind of put-upon 
character accents. Well, and the quality of the recording exactly, wasn't very exactly, good, which exactly. didn't help. Right, right. But you're right. I went through a lot of them, and you you can pick them up, you know, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bunch of the episodes, they're just especially the later years. The later years, right? Because they would record them and rerun them on the West Coast. But I, yeah, I found some as early as 1935. Wow. though. Yeah, none earlier than yeah. that. So I'm guessing the first few years are you know gone right much like a lot of sure uh television especially they would record over the videotapes yeah the first few seasons of the johnny carson show were lost because they didn't think it was valuable enough to keep them that's right that's right uh one more thing is there there's still a pine ridge it's between i guess you'd say mount uh ida mm-hmm. and mina mm-hmm. you better google map it Beautiful country, but uh, remote. Yes. Yeah. Yes. There, there are some signs, though, but I've been there, and it's uh, the general store and a little museum next door, mm-hmm. but they have a lot of memorabilia, and you, you can get souvenirs and things there. Now, for years, and I don't know if it's still happening, this might be something that, the pan- that was not doing so well in the pandemic may have finished it off. There used to be Lemon Abner days in Mina. And these started as these these couple of guys who were just aficionados. They had discovered, you know, the reruns of Lum and Abner uh-huh. and were fans of Golden Age of Radio. And there would be a weekend in uh, Mina, which would attract old-time radio fans from everywhere. And they'd, for a long time, they'd try to get someone that was associated with the Lum and Abner show, but then that was harder to do. But they would get veterans of the Golden Age of Radio, sometimes the children, you know. Uh, now, did uh, you go? I went one year. And uh, you know who I interviewed that year was Fred Foy, who was the announcer for the Lone Ranger. Oh, wow. And he was there. He and I had a great conversation about the end of the Golden Age of Radio. But he made a transition. He became, um, oh, gosh, I'm going to have to look this up. But he became the sort of Ed McMahon for maybe Dick Cavett or Joey Bishop. But he kind of made the transition over to television. Not Uh, all of them did. Not long. No, but, I mean, he was still alive in the 90s. Yeah? Yeah. I'll have to find that interview. Wow. Well, uh, shall we close out Mm -hmm. like they did back in the day? All right. Well, let's see you next week. Uh, And this, we're going to close out. This is from 1935? Yes. That's the earliest thing I've found. And it's brought to us by? Horlick's Malted Milk Tablets. Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Thank you, Randy. Thank you. These nourishing, energy-giving tablets are an excellent means of helping children ward off fatigue and hunger when playing or at school. The delicious candy-like flavor is one that children love, and they will gladly take a supply of tablets to school with them. Horlick's Malted Milk Tablets can be easily carried in a coat pocket or purse. And that's why they are such handy things to take along on shopping expeditions, on motor and hunting trips. A few tablets dissolved in the mouth when you begin to feel tired or hungry will pep you up, satisfy your hunger. When you're at your work, Horlick's tablets will keep you going at top speed on days when you can't get out to eat on time. Horlick's malted milk tablets can be purchased in both natural or chocolate flavors. They come in handy pocket-sized flasks for 10 cents which can be readily refilled from the larger sizes. This is Carlton Brickert speaking for Lum and Abner and Horlicks, who bid you all good night and good health.
This is Ozarks at Large. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, Anna Pope, Daniel Carruth. Welcome. Hello. Hey. And I want you to give us a little bit of a... What is that? <laughs> Bringing home the silver out of avocado, baby. All right. So mm, watch out. KUAF, the two of you and Lee Wood, you were the winning media team at the 2023 inaugural Top Guac Off competition. Come to us for all your guacamole making needs. All right. How many teams were there? <laughs> there were, I think there were four teams. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, Democratic Gazette had a mm-hmm. team. There was us. KNWA, and then KISS FM. All right. Yes. What did the judges say about our guacamole? I don't remember. As they said, <laughs> I had a little kick. There was a little spice. Yeah, there was um, some creaminess. Okay, yes. Mm. And the, yeah, we just we didn't <laughs> expect to win at all. We no. really did not see that one coming. We love <laughs> to just eat guacamole. There you we go. We put in the hours. That's right. Know? That's right. Well, mm-hmm. you, you know, we eat a lot. Our regular <laughs> listeners know you practice Friday, and it was really good. I do have one question because I, I, when I told Laura, my wife, that we'd won, and she said, well, what's in it? And I said, this, this, and I said, zest. I told her it was the zest of two limes, and she thought that was No, much. that's crazy. Okay. Yeah, that's what she that's said. That's a lot. That's right. a lot of zest. Okay. It was like half a lime, I think. Well, very good. I mean, the measuring, <laughs> we did have to, so there will be a, yeah. the recipe, rest, I'm using air quotes, yes. is like they're using, they're going to have the guacamole at 11 in, at Crystal Bridges. But they asked us for a recipe after we did it. Wait, so and we <laughs> really didn't have any like exact quantities or measurements and some things we didn't remember what we put in. Because we had about 15 spoons at our table, and I'm pretty sure we were all just trying everything, and the spoons were all used yeah. up by the time. It was taste to, um, yeah, season to taste. taste. Mm-hmm. But anyone now can go to 11 and get the KUAF guacamole? Indeed. Sure. I'm, seriously, yeah, right? I think yeah, so. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Is... Only as supplies last, of course. Of course, yeah, yes. of course. All right. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. for doing that. Yeah. Thank you. And we're going to put that front and center. That trophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was trying to make a pun with avocado. Holy guacamole! Avocado, go tell your friends. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I hope Daniel Cruz. Thanks mostly for coming in. Thank, Thank you. you. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Louis Jordan and food songs go together like beans and cornbread. The rhythm and blues pioneer, born in Brinkley in 1908, performed songs about foodstuffs, at least from his earliest recordings. Jordan sang ballads beautifully and was a formidable horn player, songwriter, and band leader. He influenced such influencers as James Brown, Ray Charles, and Chuck Berry, but is best known for his up-tempo novelty hits of the 1940s. It was a dish for Caesar, also King Henry III, but Columbus was hip, he said, take this tip, a chicken ain't nothing but a bird. One of Jordan's first significant such titles was 1941's A Chicken Ain't Nothing But a Bird. Not only about food, it initiated a subset of poultry-related themes, including That Chick's Too Young to Fry, and culminating with Jordan's song Ain't Nobody Here But Us Chickens. That song became a slang catchphrase in America and spent an astonishing 17 weeks atop the R&B, or race, charts, and is not even Jordan's biggest hit. I got the race and blue Blue as I can be I've got those rich and blue. A 
favorite especially among GIs during the years of World War II, Louis Jordan addressed both food and the wartime sacrifices the American public made with his song Ration Blues. The song became one of Jordan's two number one country and western hits, spending three weeks on top of that chart. Ration Blues also topped the so-termed race charts for a week. The symbolic lyrical possibilities between food and romance were often explored by Louis Jordan, but sometimes food just served as a jumping off point in such songs as Salt Pork, West Virginia, or Saturday Night Fish Fry, which stayed at number one for 12 weeks in 1949. Over the course of the two sides of the 78 RPM record, Jordan tells the story of a New Orleans house party raided by police in a song that some put among the first rock and roll records. Of course, Louis Jordan hit on many other lyrical themes throughout his decades-long career, but did seem drawn to culinary subjects. Onion, Boogie Woogie Blue Plate, Hungry Man, and Lollipop were among his titles through the late 1940s and early 1950s. Others, like You're Much Too Fat and That's That, Knock Me a Kiss, and Blue Light Boogie mentioned food. Texas Stew, Fat Back and Corn Liquor, Bananas, and another poultry song, Chicken Back, were among Jordan's mid-1950s song titles, not to mention his songs about drinks, like Lemonade, or his songs about drinking, like What's the Use of Getting Sober When You're Gonna Get Drunk Again. Jordan's most overtly foodie session must have been on April 12, 1949, when he and his Timpani Five recorded two songs that could make a meal, Coleslaw and Beans and Cornbread. Beans and Cornbread hit number one, while Coleslaw mentions, and is used to rhyme with, his home state of Arkansas. One of Louis Jordan's strongest food songs was among his last, recorded in the early 1960s, first as a single on the Warwick label, and then in Europe with Chris Barber's Dixieland Band. Called 50 Cents, this is Louis Jordan with Chris Barber's Band. Took my gal to the marketplace, the finest on the street. She said she wasn't hungry, but this is what she eat. A dozen raw, a plate of slaw, a chicken and a roast. Some apple sass, some arrow grass, soft shell crab on toast. A big beef stew, some crackers too, her appetite was immense. But when she called for pie, I thought I'd die, cause I had but 50 cents. Now join me. All I had was 50 cents, 50 cents, 50 cents. All I had was 50 cents, so you know how bad I feel. One more time. All I had was 50 cents, 50 cents, 50 cents. All I had was 50 cents, so you know how bad I feel. down so easy she had an awful tank she said she wasn't thirsty but this is what she drank a whiskey skin a glass of gin that made me shake with fear a ginger pop with rum on top a great big glass of beer a wine pail a gin cocktail she should have had more sense but when she called for more i hit the floor cause i had but 50 cents get with it all i had was 
I wasn't hungry, I didn't care to eat I was expecting every moment to be tossed out in the street She said she'd bring her family round and some night we'd have fun I gave the waiter the 50 cents and this is what he'd done He tore my clothes, he broke my nose, he hit me in the jaw He gave me a prize of two black eyes, with me he swept the floor he grabbed me where my pants hung loose and threw me over the fence. Take my advice, never try it twice if you got but 50 cents. Everybody! All I had was 50 cents, 50 cents, 50 cents. All I had was 50 cents, so you know how bad I feel. One last time! All I had was 50 cents, 50 cents, 50 cents. All I had was 50 cents, so you know how bad Louis Jordan with Englishman Chris Barber's band doing 50 cents, one in the long line of food songs recorded by Louis Jordan, the musical pioneer from Brinkley. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is underwritten by Arkansas Heritage. Relive your favorite Barton Coliseum concert memories at the Old State House Museum in downtown Little Rock, where they still play it loud. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, finding a place to live in the region seems to be a perpetual problem. But for those looking for housing that accepts housing vouchers like Section 8, it's even more challenging. But still, one of the problems is in this area, as everyone knows, there's not enough housing to start with. And we, uh, we do have uh, people on the street looking for, with vouchers looking for a place to live, and it's hard to find one. Anna Pope, Ozarks at Large's growth and impact reporter, brings us a story about landlords, renters, and the decline in housing available for recipients of HUD vouchers. That's tomorrow at noon and at 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. And if your extracurricular calendar looks a bit sparse this week, we have some suggestions for you. Trillium Salon Series and the Ozark Free Music Society are hosting Eli Wallace for a performance tomorrow night in Miller Lodge on Mount Sequoia. Wallace has been praised by The Guardian for pushing the boundaries of the prepared piano. The Brooklyn-based pianist, composer, and improviser will perform at 7 tomorrow night. Tickets start at $10. You can reserve a ticket on Eventbrite. The Natural State Criterium Series of downtown cycling races continues beginning Wednesday afternoon and into Wednesday evening in Springdale. There are different categories of races beginning at 4.30. They'll last until 8 Wednesday night. And then Sunday, downtown Springdale will be the site for the Arkansas State Criterium Championships. That's Sunday from 8 until 5. For more information about either set of races, downtownspringdale.org. It's a big week for downtown Springdale because Thursday night is the next Live at Turnbow Park concert. This month, Carver Commodore will perform with Sean Monday opening. All of the activities, including the music, begin at 6.30 Thursday night. 
Arts Live will open its latest production, the SpongeBob Musical, Friday night at the Global Campus Center just off the Fayetteville Square. Additional shows are set for Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, and Sunday afternoon. Tickets start at $15. Details can be found at artslivetheater.com. Saturday, the Arkansas Arts Academy in Rogers will host its summer concert jazz night from 6 until 10 at the Arkansas Arts Academy High School in Rogers. Scheduled to perform Academy students, Hunter Anderson, Fayetteville Latin Jazz Collective, and Mountain Street Quintet. General admission tickets are $10 and can be reserved through Eventbrite. The ninth annual Peacemaker Festival in Fort Smith is Friday and Saturday. Acts include Shane Smith and the Saints, Marcus King, and Taylor Honeycutt. Two-day passes start at $79. One-day passes start at $60. More information at peacemakerfest.org. And Sunday is the final day to take in the works included in this year's Fort Smith Regional Art Museum's Annual Invitational. The Annual Invitational is a national competitive exhibition that's been hosted by the Fort Smith Regional Art Museum every year since the Rams' inception in 1948. This year, artists were directed to be inspired by the theme, Odyssey. The museum is open this week from 11 to 6, Tuesday through Saturday, then 1 to 5 on Sunday. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Lead Hill. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. We had contributions today from Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Randy Dixon, and Jacqueline Froelich. Thanks also to Anna Pope and Daniel Carruth for coming by to talk about the Silver Avocado. Congratulations, team. Today's program was produced inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Additional help putting everything together for both broadcast and web provided by Anna Pope and Jack Travis. Kyle Callums. Yes, did you take part in Barbenheimer this weekend? No. Um, I think you and I might be the only two people on planet Earth who did not. Biggest <laughs> box office for North American theaters since Avengers Endgame in 2019. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm happy for theaters. because. Yeah. But no, I will. I'll eventually see them both. Uh-huh. And I think I'll see them in the theater. I just yeah. had a lot of other things going on this weekend. Yes, I did as well. Um, my my wife has been very excited to see Barbie since the trailer came out, what feels like 13, <laughs> 14 years ago at this point. Um, so, yes, I, I imagine uh, we will find a way to stow away from our uh, weeks-old baby to go see Barbie. Uh, and, of course, Courtney Lanning on Friday's show gave Oppenheimer just – a rave review. Yeah. Called it the best movie of the year so far. Yeah. So, yeah, I will go see them, but uh, it'll probably be this next weekend or sometime after. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow at noon and seven with a brand new edition of Ozarks at Large. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Please come back and join us again tomorrow and be well. Have a great rest of your Monday. Kansas City Jazz Ensemble Horoscope will transform 11 at Crystal Bridges into an intimate jazz club Friday, July 28th at 8 p.m., complete with handcrafted drinks, cabaret seating, and music overlooking the water. Horoscope is a tribute to the music of Horace Silver, covering compositions which include an array of styles. More information at digjazz.com.